Hello, and welcome back to Floor 9. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and in this episode, we're going to explore all the exciting updates from Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, WWDC for short, or simply DubDub, for 34 million Apple developers globally. Joining me on the ground in Cupertino is my co-host, Adam Simon. Adam, is the energy from the event palpable in the California air? What are folks at the conference <laughs> buzzing about after Monday's opening keynote? Yeah, definitely. Um, there were, I don't think they told us how many, but there were definitely thousands of developers and press um, on Apple's campus uh, in Apple Park for the first time. I think this is the most public event they've ever held at Apple Park. Wow. Uh, and it was definitely amazing to get to see that that office space in those facilities. It's truly an inspiring piece of architecture. And the scale of that office building is something that you can't really understand until you're standing in front of, uh, you know, 50 or 60 foot tall sliding glass doors that, that sort of connect the cafeteria to the space where they were having the keynote. Truly, you know, immaculate uh, landscaping, super beautiful. If there was one thing that I think the, the developers on the ground were most excited about, it was uh, the, the pass keys feature that mm. uh, we knew was coming because it was sort of pre-announced by an alliance between Apple and Google and Microsoft. So all of our major operating system vendors across the board. And it is going to, in the future, allow us to log into websites and apps and everything uh, without using passwords, with using just the biometrics on your phone or other devices. This is something that, again, we knew it was coming, but Ricky Mandelo from Apple's uh, security team, who is pretty active on Twitter talking about uh, the work that they've been doing, uh, it's got to spend, I think, probably 15 or 20 minutes talking about pass keys. I think it got the biggest applause <laughs> out of ever, anything <laughs> because people were so excited to get rid of passwords. Uh, and it's just great to see that this is you know, an industry standard, obviously, uh, you know, Apple's doing some integration on their side to make it as seamless as possible in their ecosystem, but it also works across ecosystem. If you pick up a Windows laptop and you have an iPhone, you'll still be able to do it. And it'll be a slow, a long, slow development for just for websites and apps to, to come over. Just imagine how long your bank is going to take to implement something like this. But sure. eventually, five years from now, I think we'll all look back on this moment as a turning point in uh, security and ease of use uh, across our devices. Just to imagine, you know, 20 years from now, young kids asking us what passwords used to be. <laughs> no, the prospect of a passwordless future is quite tantalizing. And it brings me a ton of peace of mind knowing that my grandma can finally get rid of that notebook next to her bedside that keeps all of her bank account information in it. But that's good. That's good. I'm glad to hear that the developers seem genuinely excited about some of the tech that was unveiled. But there was quite a few interesting narratives that emerged from yesterday's opening keynote. But I want to steer the conversation first towards one of the lab's outlook trends, and that's the multiplayer internet. At the top of yesterday's presentation, Craig showcased a ton of new ways to interact with others through extended live share features. Features. Adam, of these like live sharing capabilities, were there any use cases that stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that basically last year we saw Apple start to push the ball in this direction with things like SharePlay um, that mm -hmm. lets you uh, share an app experience over FaceTime with other people, like watching a movie or listening to music together or browsing real estate listings together, as we talk about in, in our Outlook. This year, they're they're extending that to all kinds of other places. They're actually bringing live multiplayer gaming uh, to 
the system level frameworks like Game Center. Um, they're bringing uh, shared tab groups in Safari to iOS and Mac OS, cool. which I think is super interesting. It like basically lets you browse the web together with people. And in this case, you don't have to be on a FaceTime call or in an iMessage thread. You can invite people from a, a FaceTime call or an iMessage thread to share tabs with you. But you can also just have like an active set of shared tabs with your team at work or uh, your partner or your family. They update in real time. So you, so as people add or close tabs, they update in real time. You can see which tabs other people are looking at. It's a super interesting way to uh, to sort of browse the web. And I think, you know, one thing that we've been, been thinking about in, in this sort of multiplayer internet era for, for brands is the potential for uh, what we've been calling co-shopping. But we talk about mm. co-viewing like a movie or something that you're watching a movie together remotely. Um, I think that this, you know, shared tabs in Safari opens up the, the door very uh, wide into things like shared shopping experiences where they sort of talked about that as the, in the demo use case of a family planning a vacation or a team planning an offsite. Here are the tabs of a bunch of, uh, you know, activities or locations that we're looking to visit. It. That's not quite shopping, but you sort of see how it how it could uh, you know lend itself to you know let's pick out uh, some pieces, some outfits for an event that we're going to. Let's we're shopping for televisions. Let's see what all the options are, and we can read all of the reviews and be looking at them at the same time. So I think there's a lot of potential there. And again, it's really just moving things in the direction of shared live communal experiences with other people online. I'm glad you left me a little white space to carve out here in the shared experience center, because one of my favorite updates was around uh, the shared photo libraries. And obviously this is a technology that has existed for a while, but being able to proc that directly from the camera and designate where you want that photo to go, just so in real time, when you're capturing moments, let's say with the three of us together, you know, I could send the photo to Adam or Richard in real time, add it to that library or choose to reserve it for my personal collection as well. So lots of interesting ways to share experiences across the Apple ecosystem for sure. We talked about all these different use cases for sharing, but what about an upgrade in personalization? News emerged about the lock screen and the different things that you're able to do to it now beyond just enhancing what picture you see in the background. Adam, care to talk about some of those interesting complications that are being brought to the fore? Yeah, complications is the right word, actually. <laughs> uh, basically, Apple is turning the lock screen of your iPhone into a giant Apple Watch. Um, and if you're not familiar with the Apple Watch, complications are the little uh, pieces of data that apps can put on your, your watch face. Um, and that's named after the traditional complications on, a, on an old school traditional watch. Um, basically, they're calling them widgets on the lock screen. They work more like complications on the watch and less like the widgets you might be adding to your home screen from the past couple of years from uh, those recent iOS updates. They're monochromatic for the most part, um, and they sort of match the background, but they do update live with, with data, things like weather or your calendar or your to-do list. Basically anything, any data can be shown on the lock screen now. And, and there's a lot of configurability there and a lot of personalization options. You can do things like change the font for the time and things like that as well. I think strategically, the interesting thing here, well, two things. One is that uh, we know just by, by uh, some developers spelunking into the betas that they released yesterday, that there are references to always on displays. So it seems pretty clear that the next iPhones, at least some of the models will have an always on display that can sort of display updates to those lock screen widgets, just in the same way, probably that the watch does when you have your watch on and it, your wrist is lowered, it does update the, the display, but it updates it only once per second, uh, as opposed to uh, you know 60 times per second normally, which uh, is prolongs the battery life. And so mm -hmm. it seems like that's coming to at least some iPhone models in the fall. Um, and the other thing that I think is interesting strategically is that the lock screen widgets, 
um, now use the same code as the complications on the watch. Mm -hmm. And this is going to encourage a lot of developers to ship support for Apple Watch that might otherwise not have done so because they're going to want to reach those iPhone users, which is obviously a larger install base. Um, but once they've done that work, if they can spend another day or so adding support for the watch, that obviously increases their value for users. This is a really clever way, I think, for Apple to get third-party developers back interested in developing for the watch again, which we saw a lot of interest early on, but the watch was really not ready for a lot of third-party apps. It was really not powerful enough when it first shipped. And it has been for the past couple of years, but they really struggled to get developers interested again. I think this is a clever way to sort of, uh, you know, save developers time, obviously, if they already had intended to ship those features, uh, but also encourage developers to, you know, develop for, for all, as many of their platforms as possible um, by, by allowing them to easily share code between them. Yeah, and user adoption for the watch continues to surge. So I think that there is going to be an increase from a developer perspective in the amount of people who are designing experiences, not only for the front of the phone on the lock screen, but also for the watch. One more thing before we pivot away from the lock screen. I know that they also unveiled the ability to create multiple lock screens to match the different focus states that you have associated with your phone. And now while consumers are you know accustomed to multiple desktops at this point, do you think that this is something that's going to be picked up and used by the general consumer right away? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's definitely a great update to focus states. This is, again, it's making the phone a little bit more like the watch. Um, the, the watch has had this ability for a while to change which watch face you have based on your focus state. And so changing your lock screen, I think thinking about them as similar sort of surfaces for user interaction makes a lot of sense. Uh, I don't know. They, they didn't really talk about, it's great to see them developing the focus set as a feature. Mm -hmm. Focus is a really powerful set of features, but it's also really fiddly. It takes a lot of time to set up. You really have to sort of like set aside time and sit down and think about how you might want to set it up to make it make it work so they are offering some suggestions in terms of of the kinds of things that you might want to set up uh, in terms of focus, but TBD, how many people are actually using this and, and setting it up seriously. I will say another feature that they're adding to focus that I think is interesting and smart is third-party apps will now be able to easily filter their content based on focus. So I think a great example is if you have a work focus uh, it can it can just it can hide emails from your personal account while you're in your work focus mode inside your email app. They, even things like Outlook or Gmail um, can do that, and I think that that's uh, clever and smart, and obviously increases the the sort of you know usability and, and functionality of, of focus. Um, but again, we, we'll sort of have to see how developers adopt that, and if it how, to which apps does it come into the system. You know, focus seems like all of these features seem like they're part of a longer term strategy mm -hmm. in just helping your devices sometimes automatically and sometimes with your input adapts to your circumstances. Uh, and I think we're increasingly seeing those devices all linked together. So, you know, with your focus mode now, you can set your focus mode to change when you, for example, arrive at, at an office and that can change the, the lock screen of your phone and the, your, your watch face automatically and also what content you see when you open your phone. Uh, and I think that that's uh, a really powerful feature that, again, maybe just needs a little bit better onboarding and, and setup process for users and education around it. Yeah, definitely agree. Reassembling my apps to match those different focus states would be absolute <laughs> chaos in my mind. So for now, I think I'll just keep it to my tried and true methodology. We talked about the lock screen. Let's move it slightly to the side to double clicking the lock button and pulling up your Apple wallet. There were definitely some interesting developments in that regard too. I think that it was Maryland and Arizona who were added to the state ID functionality. Adam, why don't you talk about some of the other interesting updates in terms of Apple wallet and pay? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, again, the, the digital IDs is something that's going to be a long term play the more than five years, I would say, I, I would say it probably is going to take a decade to get everybody on board. I think an interesting thing that development that happened uh, with the state IDs as they're starting to, to roll them out is um, apps will soon be able to use the digital state IDs in your wallet to age gate content. So mm. um, if you have uh, an alcohol delivery app was, was one example, or a sports betting app, it can actually query the wallet for your age. And then you would, uh, you know, face ID or touch ID to allow them to access that information. They only see the information um, of, of your age. They don't actually even see your exact age. They just see that you're over, you know, 21 or 18 or whatever the case may be that they're looking for. Um, and I think that that's, that's great. That's like, yeah, obviously you should be able to do that. And that's something that, that they, they didn't talk about previously, but that is a new feature. A good example of why digital versions of IDs are a little bit better, more secure and uh, more convenient than, mm -hmm. than a physical ID. And um, but, I'm sorry to sorry, interject, but it's, it's not just state IDs, right? It's other types of keys as well as like tickets, and you know, uh, room keys at hotels. It can be your work ID or your school ID as well, um, and as well as things like hotel keys, car keys, house keys, mm. office keys. Those are all sort of being rolled up into this relatively expanded identity system inside of Wallet. Um, you know, it's been clear for a while that they really want to be, replace every card and and ticket in your physical wallet. And clearly, they've done very well with ticketing and things on that end. And so now they're they're trying to replace everything else. It is uh, again a little more convenient and definitely more more flexible and, and sometimes more secure, I think, than those traditional versions of that. We talked about the Apple Wallet. Something else that I I think may have Klarna a little bit concerned would be the Apple buy now pay later functionality that they unveiled yesterday. Adam, uh, care to give us the deets on that and what that might mean for people's shopping habits in the future? Yeah, I mean, this is just Apple's take on the very popular white hot buy now pay later segment, um, which as you mentioned, there's Klarna and Afterpay and um, several others, as well as a lot of our traditional credit card companies also now offer services like this. It's a zero interest, you know, short limited credit loan for a specific purchase. Um, and um, Apple's version works anywhere that Apple Pay is accepted. It's something mm -hmm. that Apple's doing on their side. The merchants don't need to do anything to enable it. Um, that obviously is something that users who like these services will appreciate because there are, of course, some merchants that haven't integrated with these services. The only interesting thing about it is that it's available for any Apple Pay purchase. And I, I think it's more to get people to prioritize Apple Pay over other services than anything else. I don't think mm -hmm. that, I think that that's the reason that Apple is doing this. Um, and I think, you know, there's one other feature that they announced that's in the same realm. Why would you use Apple Pay over something like, let's say, Shop Pay on a Shopify site? That is uh, their order tracking features that are starting to come to Apple Pay. This does require the merchant to support it um, because, of course, you know, they have to somehow communicate that information to Apple. Um, but uh, it will let you track the sort of shipping status of your order from a merchant directly inside of Wallet if you have paid with Apple Pay. Uh, they did announce that Shopify is going to support this uh, this order tracking feature right out of the gate, uh, which is interesting because it does you know compete with Shop Pay, and I guess it, it makes Apple Pay and Shop Pay sort of uh, equivalent in terms of functionality because this is something that Shop Pay has supported for a while now using Shopify's uh, Shop app. You know, for brands, I think the takeaway is that Shopify remains the premier partner. For for all kinds mm -hmm. of innovations in e-commerce. In e um, and even when it maybe doesn't necessarily serve them directly, uh, they, they really want to be at the forefront of everything to the point that they are letting Apple uh, come to parity with their own services on their platform. And I think that that shows that they're 
you know, their interest there is in being uh, being innovative and being sort of the best platform to the point of allowing certain competitors to infringe on some of their other features, which I think is is interesting. For Apple, this is more about reasons that people might not be using Apple Pay uh, for purchases and to start to chip away at those reasons uh, so that they continue to invest in that ecosystem. Anything to keep people locked into the Apple ecosystem? <laughs> well, Apple does make a lot of money off of Apple Pay. You have to remember, this isn't just about <laughs> ecosystem lock-in. It, it also is a, a part of their services revenue. And I just think generally that location data has become incredibly useful to all consumers. I think that everyone has a bit of a bad habit of tracking their Uber, tracking their delivery driver, just to see up to the second when they're going to get there. So I know that this is uh, going to be a welcome product on the consumer end. From that micro tracking and location data perspective, there's some interesting developments that Apple was teasing from inside of cars, which we know rely very heavily on location data. Um, CarPlay got a total overhaul and now looks a lot more like some of the next-gen vehicles of the future. Adam, is this really just getting into the operating system of these OEMs, or does Apple have <laughs> other ambitions that we're not privy to yet? Well, we know it's a very open secret that Apple is working on something in the automotive space. Rumors have ranged from building their own fully autonomous, self-driving vehicle that they will sell or lease or loan to consumers um, to occasionally people talking about just developing sort of components for other car makers in the autonomy and infotainment space. Uh, what, we, what we saw announced uh, yesterday is uh, a huge update to CarPlay, which is, again, the interface that where you connect your phone either with a cable or wirelessly to your vehicle. And up until yesterday, it was really just focused on the infotainment system, right? So showing you maps, showing you access to your music and podcasts and audiobooks and, and everything like that. As recently, last year, they added a lot of uh, sort of video conferencing apps. You could stay on that Zoom call with audio only while you were in your vehicle. What they announced this week is all of the driver's screens. They are not notably addressing that backseat screens yet, um, but all of the driver's screens. And what this is really about is um, a lot of higher end vehicles at this point now have screens that span you know the entire driver interface from the instrument cluster directly behind the steering wheel to the traditional center entertainment infotainment space a lot of them now also extend all the way to the right into the passenger space so the passenger has a little screen um, as well as maybe a larger screen in the center console um, carplay basically can now support all of those things and what that means is carplay is also integrated deeply into the vehicle's real-time operating system the thing that updates things like your speedometer is now part of carplay um, and uh, as well as uh, climate control you can actually <laughs> access your car's old school traditional radio via CarPlay now, which I thought was very funny. It basically allowing CarPlay to take over all of the driver's screens. Um, and, you know, I think this is really interesting. I think this is probably the first thing that is shipping out of that Project Titan team that we know is working on car technologies for Apple. Uh, that team has gone through a lot of changes over the years. And this is, I think, why we don't fully know if their plan is to release their own vehicle. Certainly, this is giving them all the learnings that they would need to, to move in that direction. But uh, I think strategically, the question is, they announced a lot of partners who would be uh, shipping this new version of CarPlay. I, there were almost, I think, a dozen automakers um, who have signed on for this version. Uh, it, this 
is this version is not going to be shipping to anyone until the end of 2023 at the earliest. So I think we're going to start seeing it in model 2024 mm-hmm. vehicles. Um, so it's still a, a little ways out. Question that I have is why would all of these automakers get in bed with Apple and sort of throw in the towel on all of their uh, their own sort of software developments um, if Apple was about to compete with them? I think that's that's the big question in my in my mind. Um, is it really just a stalling tactic uh, while they they you know sort of work to catch up? Because what Apple did show is miles better than what we see for most of these automakers in terms of inter- interface design. No surprise there, right? Like it's it's Apple. They uh, they know how to design software. And I think, you know, another another comment that I heard a lot on the ground here in Cupertino was uh, that it actually, it looks better than Tesla. And I, I would agree with that. I think because these screens, Tesla looked futuristic when it first came out because it did have the one giant screen in the center console. But at this point, that looks a little, and, and when you compare it to this new version of CarPlay, it looks a little bit like a hack. It really mm-hmm. does look like an iPad that they just stuck in a <laughs> in a vehicle, right? Whereas these screens that, that Apple is showing off uh, in partnership with a lot of you know leading auto manufacturers, they're more integrated into the vehicle itself. They're the, the one that they demoed was very wide and skinny, basically, um, with a sort of a larger uh, a larger section in the center console, um, and it just looks more natural. It looks like it fits the vehicle better. Of course, the the sort of way that the design of the the instrument clusters and things looked like they were they were all beautiful you could customize them just like your lock screen with different fonts and colors and and sort of designs for those instruments so you know i think it's an interesting dynamic we have here where where we don't fully know what apple's longer term car strategy is you can definitely see them putting the pieces in place uh to potentially make their own vehicle or maybe you know maybe this it would be very on apple but maybe the strategy really is to dominate the market by supplying all of the sort of important uh sort of user interface pieces Mm. to other auto manufacturers that would be uh, a little surprising and a shift in strategy for them, but uh, it, at least in the short term, it seems like that's where they're going in the next, let's say, five years. Yeah, you talked about some of that personalization inside of the car. I think that's uh, akin to what we saw from BMW at CES with that car can change colors on the outside. So knowing that consumers <laughs> have that level of customization on the inside too, I think will be a welcome improvement for those who really care about pimping their ride. But one thing I want to touch on before we segue away is do the widgets on the dashboard of the vehicle actually seem to have modularity to them where you can move them around to fit and customize whatever vehicle you're driving? Or was that not really teased out in this in this presentation? Uh, yes and no. The infotainment widgets do appear like they're totally customizable. Um, mm. They're optional widgets uh, that are customizable. And you can customize the way that your instrument cluster, things like your speedometer, importantly, yep. and your fuel gauge or your or your, your charge for your electric vehicle, you can customize how those are displayed. So they showed versions that are more traditional sort of radial dials, digital versions of radial dials, but then also just uh, the sort of linear bar graphs for those things as well, mm. um, as well as things like color. I don't think you're going to be able to change your instrument cluster. I don't think you can hide your speedometer. I think that might be <laughs> possi- possibly illegal. I'm not sure. Um, I don't know that we've ever, <laughs> my, my guess is that's probably, it's probably illegal to ship a car without a speedometer visible to the driver. <laughs> so um, I think that there's probably going to be some restrictions there. Uh, just like on your lock screen, you, you, you won't be able to hide the time uh, on your lock screen on your phone. Um, but I do think that it's way more customizable than what we've seen from, from automakers to date, including Tesla for that matter. Mm-hmm. Officer, 
Do, do you know how fast you were going? Person. No, I was driving an Apple car. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but to keep it rooted in the vehicle experience, one of the interesting things that Apple showed off yesterday was some of these AR features that they're bringing into maps, just bringing recreations of cities and kind of showing off some of those iconic landmarks in immersive 3D uh, ways. Were there any other interesting tidbits of information from Apple as it pertains to AR or was that really it? So I, the big thing, Spectre, that was looming over this event was whether Apple was about to announce their AR, VR, mixed reality headset, uh, and, and or even just tease it and maybe tease some of the software uh, available that will be available to developers. That didn't happen. Um, and I think they really <laughs> kept all of us in suspense until the very end because they didn't talk about AR at all. And if you know Apple, you know they've been uh, hyping up AR for years at this point. The latest breaking news just as of this morning is one of our, our reliable leakers from the Apple supply chain, Ming-Chi Kuo, said that Apple will now announce the headset in January at a special event um, with uh, headsets going on sale in Q2 of 2023. Um, and somewhere in the middle there between those two dates, they will have software for developers to start working on apps for the headset. I guess it still makes sense if there is an impending launch of the headset to not really talk about AR outside of that context. Um, you know, they also didn't talk about the Apple TV at all, mm. which is normally doesn't get a lot of significant software updates. Uh, the one place where they did talk about it is that they are increasing the ability for developers to build cross-platform um, apps that work with either the watch or the phone or the iPad in your Apple TV, um, which is interesting. But I think that the rumor is, again, that there's a lower-cost Apple TV hardware in the pipeline and possibly some other devices for the home, like a, like a new HomePod and, and potentially uh, some new form factors for the home as well coming. It seems like those things were all punted because there are going to be announcements either later this year or early next year um, that will come alongside new hardware products. Um, and I think, you know, that's the sort of exciting things that everybody is looking for. But in the meantime, uh, you know, they spent a lot of time talking about um, tools that they're giving developers to use uh, some of their, uh, their what we call uh, cameras input uh, applications, things like live text and live translation. Those are things that Apple has been building into their own apps that are now available to third-party developers. Same thing with the, this new improved uh, 3D mapping experience that developers are going to be able to embed those into their own apps uh, as well. So, which I think is uh, partially, you know, just great news for developers and a little bit of Apple bowing to pressure from regulators to make sure that they are quickly, even if it's not happening on day one, they are quickly opening up their own services to, and making them available to third-party developers as well to try to demonstrate to developer, to uh, regulators that they are open to competition on their own platforms, which obviously has been a topic of hot debate over the past couple of years. Yeah, you talked about software being unveiled yesterday too. And I think Ventura was one of the interesting things that they had on display at the WWDC. One of the interesting points that you made to me offline is that the windowing mechanism for the stage manager seems a lot like how you would manage uh, assets in a 3D space. Do you think that there were any other kinds of intonations of AR development from Apple or was that really the most prominent one? No, I think that was sort of the most interesting one from my perspective. Um, stage manager is a new multitasking interface that's coming to the Mac and the iPad. It's really... I think probably the, the impetus for it was uh, how does an iPad do uh, multitasking when it's plugged into a, a larger display? Um, and Stage Manager is the way that iPads are going to handle multiple windows on a larger display, at least for now. Um, but if you look at how it's designed, it really also looks like how you would 
use something like a traditional 2D interface from a Mac or an iPad in a 3D system like mm. an AR or VR headset. Um, and this has been a big question in my mind, and I think in a lot of developers' minds, is will the, the headset allow you to access your iPad or your Mac uh, and bring some of that content into the experience in the same way that, for example, uh, Horizon Workrooms, uh, Facebook's product, a VR product for work, allows you to bring your laptop into the virtual 3D space and still access things like your email or run a PowerPoint presentation or whatever from your laptop. Um, and Basically, this indicates to me that Apple, I wasn't sure if Apple was going to enable that kind of functionality right out of the gate. It seems like they probably are, and Stage Manager will probably probably be the interface for accessing your, your 2D applications in 3D space. Certainly, they're, they're thinking about uh, how that will work. Basically, raises more questions about the headset than it answers, uh, because uh, will this headset be an accessory for a Mac or an iPad, maybe? Uh, will this just be sort of a tangential functionality that's there if you want it, but not really the focus? Uh, you know, TBD, I guess we will learn more uh, in January, hopefully. One of the other rich nuggets that you just touched on are the developments that Apple is making from a camera as an input perspective. And I think one of the major applications is what they're doing with medication tracking in the health department. Not only could you actually just type in what medication you're taking to see if there is any uh, hazards that you should be aware of, of, you know, mixing some of the prescriptions that you are taking, but you can also just take a picture right from your phone and add it to your library of medication tracking. That way you can get alerts and alarms to ensure that you're staying on top of your health routine and making sure that you have every tool at your disposal to uh, keep track of your health. Yeah, I think it is really just one of those simple quality of life things for uh, who wants to, you know, figure out how to spell the names of these, uh, these cryptic names of these uh, different medications. And uh, this just gives you an easy way to import them without having to worry about all that. You can imagine there would be lots of users who might benefit from this feature who might never use it because they don't want to spell uh, the insane names that some of these medications have. <laughs> As we bring it to a close on WWDC, just want to pull up a couple of other miscellaneous items that we thought were interesting from the throughout the day. Uh, Spotlight is definitely getting a revamp with more rich results for both media and sports. Interestingly, they also moved it to your home screen on the phone where that little white bar at the bottom with one touch will enable you to proc that experience. Adam, you think this is a good move from Apple? We'll see. I think there was actually a lot of pushback from developers on the ground about spotlight replacing the little the little dots at the bottom of your home screen for uh for that show you the different pages of your home screen that's being replaced entirely by a search button mm. uh, very interesting strategically because um spotlight uh, is not backed by Google search. Spotlight is backed by Apple's own search engine, which has slowly over the years expanded its uh, purview and what it's able to do. Um, it also works on the Mac uh, it, it, with a shortcut key. Uh, again, they, they're enhancing the results there. They're enhancing what's, what you're able to do from Spotlight. Um, it's really, I think, highlighting the frenemy relationship between Apple and Google around search. Google pays Apple a ton of money every year to be the default search engine on uh, iOS. Uh, and that's something that has been sort of looked at by regulators and, and possibly criticized, uh, you know, possibly the target at some point of some antitrust mm -hmm. action somewhere in the world. And I think that that's partially why Apple is doing this is to show that, no, we actually also have our own search and we're, we're starting to, we continue to, to develop that and push that forward and maybe make it a little more prominent. It also puts them in a good position for that if they ever were forced to uh, sort of 
divorce that uh, financial relationship from Google, uh, that they have something in place that can can be a substitute. And you know, you never know. Strategically, at some point, it's certainly I feel like the Apple Google relationship is better now than it was, let's say, five years ago. Um, but you never know where things might go in the future, and they might strategically at some point decide they need to end that, uh, even if they're not forced to. So, Spotlight has always sort of been there as their emergency uh, SOS. We need to, we need a search engine of our own, um, and I think that we're just seeing increasingly we'll we'll see users maybe use things like Spotlight and Siri search uh, with voice um, over over whatever is their default in their their Safari on their iPhone. Two last interesting things on the media uh-huh. side of the of of the equation. Um, one is uh, that Apple is finally enabling push notifications from websites on iOS. Mm. This is something that has been available uh, on Chrome and Safari for the Mac uh, and obviously Chrome across platforms uh, for a long time. And now it's finally coming to iOS. So any website will be able to send push notifications. This has long been one of the reasons to make a native app over a website for things like like media sites is the ability to notify users. Um, So I think, again, I think this is a little bit because of regulatory pressure and and Mm -hmm. demonstrating that no web apps actually can get a lot of the same functionality as traditional apps. But at the end of the day, I think it's going to be, you know, potentially great for publishers, potentially great for users who want that functionality. Um, And it's it's a little bit of a, a finally. Uh, we got a lot of quality of life uh, upgrades across the iOS system this year uh, like that, including things like the ability to unsend iMessages yes. and edit, edit. messages after they are sent. So, uh, and huge improvements to mail. There were a lot of, uh, as somebody said, there was a lot of Apple settling family business, just a lot of <laughs> outstanding small rough edges that were kind of annoying that are, are now going to go away. Um, and it's maybe does not the most innovative and exciting, uh, you know, time uh, or, or set of announcements when you see things like that, but it does uh, make your life better. Uh, so who's going to complain <laughs> about that? Um, one last thing I wanted to call out is um, Apple's increased focus on sports. They're really expanding um, Apple News's coverage of sports, including uh, if you have Apple subscribed to Apple News Plus, you're going to get a lot of local news content covering your mm-hmm. local teams. Um, there will be, you know, improved alerts and sort of cross-device tracking of the teams that you follow. So it's really easy to stay on top of games that are happening in progress, uh, as well as you know updates uh, in terms of what's happening with the players and things like that. Um, you know, we'll have to see uh, as these features roll out how good they are. But I think it's an interesting cross-channel strategy from Apple that I think is mostly being played out in Apple TV and Apple News, that by investing in sports and securing some exclusive content there, hoping to attract people to those platforms who might otherwise not be using them. You know, I think the stories between Apple TV Plus and Apple News Plus are very different. Apple TV Plus is clearly on an upswing, having just won uh, the Best Picture Oscar, and I think been doing really well on the TV side of things as well. Um, Sports is really more of a, you know, okay, we have some early traction with with early adopters on the on the TV side of things, and they're hoping that sports can really broaden that audience. With news, Apple News, uh, you know, they did say Apple News is the most used news platform or news app on uh, every platform that it is on, which is not surprising because of how aggressive they are at pushing it. <laughs> but I do think that that Apple News Plus, which is their premium paid offering, has been less successful. And mm-hmm. uh, I think it makes sense to turn to sports as a potential way to, to boost engagement there. And this is just something that for brands to keep an eye on. Apple News is one of the few areas that Apple offers uh, paid advertising opportunities for brands inside of. Uh, on their platforms. Um, so if Apple News, if you know the sports additions to Apple News really does start to bolster engagement there, that might make it more
more appealing to some brands who, who haven't been advertising there yet. One distinct advantage that I think Apple does have over some of its predecessors like Bleacher Report and ESPN is they have the opportunity to build this sports ecosystem from the ground up and build in you know multiple touch points across that consumer journey across multiple devices. I know if I'm running late and you know watching a game and want to catch the tail end as I run into my house and see those fantasy stats on the side as I go into it, that would be extremely helpful, especially as we think about all the new sports betting integrations that are coming to the fore as well. There's a lot more interactive ways to engage with your team than ever before. And I think Apple has the mechanisms to make that experience a lot more exciting. I think one of the ways that Apple has started to begin to build this distinct advantage in the sports arena is what they're doing in the live activity space. We talked about the differences in the lock screen at the top of the conversation, but one thing that we glanced over is how these consistent notifications are being rolled into one persistent tracker that you can leave on your screen, such as four scores of a sports game. But Adam, I know there are a bunch of other use cases involved, some that may even have implications for our brands. Yeah, it's uh, something they're calling live activity. And it's basically a new kind of notification that uh, when you are getting lots of updates from something, like let's say you're, uh, you've ordered something from Grubhub and you're getting updates on that food delivery, that instead of spamming you with like five notifications over the course of, of the, the sort of process as the food, the order is accepted and the food is ready and the courier has picked it up and it's on its way and it's five minutes away and it's at your door. That's obviously going to help with you know, users managing their notifications and just give you a better experience. Those sort of very time sensitive, more real time notifications um, from apps, again, sports scores, things like, uh, you know, on demand deliveries mm. seem really, uh, you know, optimal for this. Also flight updates as you're, you know, getting updates on, on, on your flights, things like that. Um, I think it's, again, it's just adding a little bit more of that sense of liveness to your devices and to the software um, and giving you a better interface for managing those kind of live trackers that you might want to keep track of. Yeah, it's always alarming when you come back to your phone and you see you have 21 notifications and then realize that 19 of them are from the same app in the last seven seconds. So I think this (laughs) will go a long way to streamlining that. That'll do it for us here at Floor 9 in our coverage of WWDC or Dub Dub for short. Adam, uh, thanks for dialing in from Cupertino. I hope you enjoyed the Apple Park. Yeah, it was gorgeous. uh, And uh, it was a great time. And obviously, lots to think about coming uh, in these software updates, which which will roll out to most users later this uh, fall. And thank you again, as always, for listening. You can find us on Medium at IPG Lab and on Twitter at IPG Lab. Thanks, as always, for joining. Bye-bye.